Good evening, everybody. Welcome to a new episode of the Glenn Greenwald podcast. Uh, I assume that some of you are new to Colin, and that's because this week is the first week that the app has become available on Android. So it has been available for several months since its launch on iPhone, and it is now available uh, on Android as well. So that makes it universally available. So presumably some of you have downloaded the app within the last uh, week or so. And so for those of you who have, welcome. I'm incredibly excited about this platform. Uh, It is intended to be and is a podcast platform. But for me, the thing that makes it most exciting and, and most valuable is the ease with which interactivity is fostered with the audience. Uh, essentially, I will try and limit what I have to say um, to say 30 minutes or so, 20 minutes. Maybe I go a little bit overboard because I'm not the most uh, disciplined person when it comes to time, but I try and leave as much time as possible for the end of the show to take questions and comments, critiques, um, have interaction with all of you who are here in the room and anyone who wants to can uh, click on the raised hand feature, which is uh, the telephone uh, emoji or logo at the bottom of the app, and that will place you automatically into the queue. And then when I'm done and ready, I will take uh, questions and comments in the sequence in which everybody appears in the queue. So the intention of this room when I created it this morning is somewhat different or at least a little bit more limited than it is now as a result of the events of the day. As the title indicates, I had intended to discuss and definitely still intend to discuss a video report that we prepared and published on Rumble earlier today that was a companion to a Substack article that I also published earlier today that was much broader, but both of them were about what I'm calling the neoliberal war on dissent. And the Substack article was intended to look at how this war on dissent evolved over the last decade and what all of its component parts are and what weapons are being invoked in it and how those weapons are being used and what the likely trajectory of this is what the what uh, of, what, uh, this is likely to be, and obviously the somewhat stunning repression that we all saw over the last several weeks in Canada by the Trudeau, Trudeau government, culminating in a declaration of a state of emergency, which allows essentially the abolition of civil liberties in order to punish people, seize their assets, arrest them prohibit protests, powers that were not just theoretically invoked by the Trudeau government, but invoked and then wielded quite aggressively. That was stunning to a lot of people, and it provides an excellent window in which to see this war in dissent. And what I wanted to emphasize is that this is not some kind of a sudden or new development. It wasn't sudden or new when it emerged after the January 6th riot at the Capitol, nor is it new or sudden in Canada. It has been at least a decade in the making. And the video that we published uh, examined one particular weapon that has alarmed a lot of people, rightfully so, 
which is the seizure of people's bank accounts with no due process, simply asserting that they are in some way associated with these protests that have been overwhelmingly peaceful and therefore illegal, and simply freezing their bank accounts, preventing them from accessing their own money, their own assets, the things they use to pay their rent and buy gasoline and pay groceries for their children and pay their utilities. And this weapon that we saw being used in Canada is also something that has been a decade in the making. And I wanted to take the time to review where this weapon first came from, where it was pioneered and how it became implemented throughout so many Western states. It did also did not just materialize one day in Canada. And so that was my intention was to talk about both that video report and the Substack article. And, and obviously this war on dissent is something that I've been covering extensively in multiple ways. It probably has been the primary focus of mine, certainly since I left The Intercept and went to Substack, began doing independent journalism there and at Rumble and now here at Colin, whether it is the infringement of civil liberties in the name of this congressional January 6th committee that has run roughshod over basic core due process rights uh, in exactly the way that several Supreme Court decisions during the McCarthy era warned about, or whether it's the spate of online censorship that has been the byproduct of state power and corporate power. All of these things, the, the advocacy by Democrats of the return of the no-fly list for people who have been convicted of, or even in many cases charged with no crime, but who again have just been asserted to have played some nefarious role in the January 6th riot. All of this has been part of an effort on the part of the neoliberal order, the neoliberal ruling class in Western Europe, in the United States, obviously now we're seeing it in Canada, to repress dissent, to make dissent criminal. We've certainly seen it exacerbated in all kinds of ways, ways that we've discussed here as part of the COVID pandemic, where any kind of questioning of or dissent from or divergence from the pronouncements of public health authorities were simply banned from the internet. You simply couldn't express them. And if you tried and defied orders not to do it enough times, you would just get banned from the major social media platforms, the major platforms that are used as the primary instrument with by which we communicate and conduct political debates. So all of this is accumulating. You know, we talk about them in isolation. And so what I wanted to do in the Substack article was take a step back and look at the decade-long advancement toward what really has to be described as repression and to specifically look at the development of this one particular instrument of banishment from the financial system in the Rumble video in order to see how this has happened. So I'm definitely going to talk about that um, as the primary focus, but we would obviously be remiss if we ignored the news uh, that came from Russian President Vladimir Putin just a couple of hours ago, nighttime in, in Moscow, in which he gave a, I think it was ended up being a 50-minute speech that was quite dramatic, quite emphatic, quite consequential in its claims and concluded ultimately not by declaring what the U.S. media and the U.S. intelligence community have been telling us was inevitable, 
had already been decided was something that we should expect any day, which is a full-scale invasion of Ukraine, including through Kiev, the Ukrainian capital, but instead is the formal recognition of two particular territories filled with uh, people who have loyalties to Russia more so than they do to Kiev, just like the people of Crimea did, just like the people in the breakaway provinces in Georgia did. And essentially, Putin took a limited step, although a serious one, of officially recognizing those territories as sovereign and independent, meaning no longer part of Ukraine. And it shouldn't be understated what he did. He essentially redrew the map officially of that part, that region of the world. Although in reality, um, assuming that things don't spiral out of control from where they are now, it doesn't represent such a significant advancement of the status quo. The reality is these are Russian-backed separatists. They've long been backed by Russia. They've long been more loyal to Moscow than to Kiev. Russia has had forces helping them. Um, The statement is really more of a bold one that Putin's concerns about being encircled by NATO uh, are not going to be ignored. I think that was the purpose of, of today's statements. And it's a very dangerous situation for lots of reasons, including the fact that NATO could easily take steps that are either by design or by effect highly provocative that could cause further reactions from Putin. And very serious global wars have broken out through circumstances a lot less extreme and a lot less dangerous than the ones prevailing right now in that region of the world. I think the real question, though, is what role should the United States be playing, if any, in this conflict? As Americans, as Westerners, um, we can leave the debates about what are the proper borders of Ukraine and which allegiances do the people in these provinces and territories have to the people of Ukraine and the people of Russia? The question, though, of what role the United States government or its NATO allies should play, if any, is the one that I think we ought to be having. And that's the one on which I want to focus briefly. So let me go back to the first topic and just highlight a couple of the points that I really wanted to bring to the fore. Um, And then I'll give you kind of a quick view of my view of the Russia-Ukraine conflict from the perspective of the U.S. role in the podcast that I co-host with my Canadian colleague, Hugh Anthony. Uh, We've covered Russia and Ukraine quite a bit. Um, And so if you're interested further in kind of the elaboration of of my views and his on the broader conflict, you can listen to some of those past episodes on the website. Let me go first, though, to this, this question of this attempt to eliminate dissent. And I know it sounds like it's a hyperbolic formulation to say that neoliberal elites in the West are in the midst of launching and and, and waging a war on dissent. It sounds like an exaggeration. And I think it's worth thinking about why it sounds like an exaggeration. If you think back to the way that your views of freedom and democracy and tyranny and autocracy and repression were formed in childhood, there were certain attributes that we instinctively associate with the states we're taught to view as tyrannical. Censorship of 
dissent certainly is a major one. Banning or outlawing protests against government officials is another. The doling out of punishments without due process, without proving somebody has been guilty of a crime, but nonetheless punishing them is another major one. Treating political transgressions, not just acts of violence or theft, but political transgressions, not as acts of protest, but as crimes against the state. That is a foundational attribute of tyranny or despotism or autocracy. Imprisoning journalists like Julian Assange for the crime of revealing information in the public interest that the public clearly has the right to know is certainly a feature, a defining feature of tyranny. And so on the one hand, we can easily recognize tyranny when we see it in the states where we're encouraged to view as autocratic regimes, which are typically countries that are in some way adverse to the United States. So if you were to say, for example, that tyranny prevails in Russia or China or Iran or North Korea or Venezuela or Cuba, all states adverse in some way to the United States, nobody would bat an eye. Nobody would lift a finger to disagree with you. Maybe not nobody. Certainly every opinion has its defenders, but by and large in in mainstream political discourse, It's not only permissible, but virtually obligatory to affirm the fact that these adverse countries to the United States or to the West are tyrannical. And if you ask people why they believe that, they would cite the invocation of all the tyrannical or despotic powers I just enumerated. It's much less rare, or it's much more rare, rather, much less common to hear those claims about tyrannical countries that are allied with the United States. We hear way more, for example, about the human rights abuses or the anti-democratic steps of countries that are adverse to the United States, like, say, Russia and China and Iran and Venezuela, than we ever do about countries allied with the United States, even when they're as tyrannical, if not more so. The regime in Saudi Arabia, the regime in Cairo, the regime throughout the Persian Gulf states, the Persian Gulf uh, monarchs. Those countries, because they're allies of the United States, we don't really use the club against them of calling them autocracies or protesting their tyranny. So you already begin to see the propagandistic framework with which tyranny is discussed. We hear it much, much more when it comes to the states that in some way are perceived as adversarial to the United States than we do the states that are allies of the United States. But there's a much deeper and more destructive way in which this propaganda manifests, which is that we are basically inculcated with the idea that to live in a Western country inherently means that your government never really is repressive or despotic in the sense that is true of those other countries. Maybe your government can occasionally exceed the legitimate limits of its power. Maybe there are occasionally elected leaders who you regard as authoritarian, more authoritarian than others or than the tradition of your country permits. But 
by and large, we don't talk about Western democracies as being despotic or tyrannical or repressive. It's like those words don't even go together. And that's why people were laughing. You know, you just laugh at the idea. You don't have to mount an argument. You just laugh. If you say Justin Trudeau is engaged in repressive or tyrannical attacks on the right of protest because Justin Trudeau is Canadian. Canada doesn't have despots. That's for these other bad countries that are enemies of the United States, not its allies. That's not, tyranny doesn't happen in the West. You just look at Justin Trudeau, he has that little sweet face, occasionally marred by blackface, or more than occasionally. But still, he's like a, you know, Western dynastic prince who comes from a well-regarded bloodline. His father, Pierre Trudeau, and his mother, Margaret Trudeau, were chic and celebrated international leaders of Canada. He inherited that, that position, and he's the prime minister of a country we're taught to view as unthreatening, democratic, and essentially decent. And so it's almost like there's a reflexive aversion to hearing words like repressive or tyrannical or authoritarian when it's used in conjunction with a country like Canada or France or Germany or Spain or the UK or the United States. We're just, we're just ingrained to resist that idea. And I suppose that if you wanted to move beyond the instinctive level and try and mount some kind of an argument as to why if you are somebody who essentially finds that framework appealing, try and mount an argument as to why, why it's valid, you would probably cite the fact that in those Western countries, at the very least, our leaders are elected democratically, and that provides some kind of a shield against actual repression in a way that, say, China or Iran doesn't really have, or Venezuela these days doesn't really have. I don't think that's a particularly, it's a, I, I understand why it's a immediately or intuitively appealing argument, but it really just instantly collapses upon minimal critical scrutiny because democracies and majorities are capable of extreme repression. In fact, the whole foundation of the Constitution of the United States, especially the Bill of Rights, is that if you let majorities do whatever they want, repression and tyranny and despotism are guaranteed. The Bill of Rights really is nothing other than an anti-majoritarian document. It's designed to rein in majoritarian sentiment. So 80% of the people may want to prohibit or the expression of a particular ideology or criminalize a particular use of the press, but it doesn't matter. Even if 80 or 90% or 95% of the public democratically wants to eliminate the right to express an opinion, the Constitution bars that from happening. It says majorities can be repressive. They may want to ban a particular religion, and yet there's a clause that guarantees religious freedom against majoritarian attempts to deny that religious practice. They may want to empower the police in certain instances to invade people's homes without a search warrant because there's a particularly scary killer or rapist 
on the loose, but the Constitution says even if majorities want that, you still can't do it. You can't deprive people of their life or their liberty or their property without the due process of law, no matter how many people want that. So the whole foundational premise of the Bill of Rights is that democratic will is no guarantee against tyranny. The contrary is true. Democracies can often foster tyranny. And it's also true that in some of the countries we're taught to view as repressive, the leaders of those countries sometimes are elected democratically and sometimes even when they're not are very popular. And that's certainly true, for example, of Vladimir Putin, who hate him as much as you want. You can't find a Western expert on Russia, even even ones whose function is propagandistic in nature, who would deny the fact that Putin is largely popular among the population. The same is true of Hugo Chavez in Venezuela. People were taught to view as despotic. So this whole framework is one that we ought to try and escape from. The idea that certain countries are intrinsically repressive, certain countries are inherently shielded from that state of affairs. And just simply look at the use of powers that we are taught from a young age to view as repressive. And when you do that, it's really not hard to see the growing repression in the West. In fact, it's very hard not to see it. How many shows have I done on this platform in the short time that I've been here about campaigns to censor dissidents, people who have divergent views or who question orthodoxies and pieties of the neoliberal order to censor them and silence them from the internet. The last show I did was about the orgy of, of, of demands that Joe Rogan, the most popular podcast host in the country, be removed from Spotify. I did a lot of reporting on how just over a year ago, at exactly the time that Parler became the most popular and downloaded app in the country, more than Instagram or TikTok or Facebook or Twitter or any other app, the number one app in both the Google and Apple stores, there was a move by Democratic politicians like AOC and others to demand that Google and Apple remove Parler from its stores and then a similar pressure on Amazon to remove it from its web hosting services. And within 48 hours, Parler had gone from the most popular and downloaded app in the country to a social media platform that no longer functioned, that you could no no longer find on the internet. And the entire history of the COVID pandemic has been little more than ensuring that people who question Dr. Fauci and the World Health Organization or the CDC about the origins of COVID, about the efficacy of cloth masks, about the justifiability of lockdowns and quarantine simply can't be heard about the efficacy of alternative treatments. You're just not allowed to express those views if they're in conflict with those health authorities. It's been a two-year training session in submission and acquiescence to a censorship regime on the internet, which existed and was created to liberate us from centralized corporate and state control and instead has subjected us to its tentacles more potently than ever. And if you look at this new weapon or what people view as this new weapon of denying people access to financial services, one of the 
primary purposes of the work I've done over the past several days, particularly with this Rumble report, was to demonstrate that this tactic, as I indicated earlier, was actually pioneered in 2010 when WikiLeaks published a series of reports that the U.S. government found to be highly incriminating. And what happened was the Obama administration, the Obama Justice Department was desperate to find evidence to justify the criminal prosecution of WikiLeaks and Julian Assange back in 2010. But they couldn't. There, there was no case to be made that WikiLeaks broke the law, or at least no case that could be made that the Obama Justice Department was comfortable bringing because WikiLeaks didn't do anything that the New York Times and The Guardian and El Pais and all of their other journalistic partners around the world also did. So there was no way to justify prosecuting WikiLeaks without prosecuting those other media outlets, and they weren't willing to do it, and they didn't think they could successfully prosecute WikiLeaks, consistent with the First Amendment. But that didn't deter them from punishing WikiLeaks. They just used extrajudicial and extra-legal means to do so, which is remarkable that any time a government decides that it wants to punish citizens or a group or a media outlet or an activist organization, despite the fact that it is incapable of proving in a court of law that they actually committed crimes, the only time that punishment should be permissible by the state. It should be a, a very alarming any time the state says, we're going to punish these people, even though we can't prove in a court they've actually committed crimes. But that's exactly what they did to WikiLeaks. People forget that the chairman of the Senate Homeland Security Committee at the time was the neoconservative Senator Joe Lieberman, who at the time was an independent from Connecticut. Some of you will recall that he was Al Gore's vice presidential running mate in 2000 on the Democratic Party ticket. And he led the way, although we had plenty of allies in both parties, in pressuring financial companies like MasterCard and Visa and PayPal to just terminate WikiLeaks' account based on the assertion, but never the proven charge, let alone a conviction, that WikiLeaks was engaged in criminality. And they therefore said to these companies, we regard WikiLeaks as a criminal organization. We regard WikiLeaks as a threat to national security. Therefore, if you continue to enable them to collect funds from their supporters, we will regard you, PayPal and Bank of America and MasterCard and Visa, as aiding and abetting attacks on American national security. And obviously, when the U.S. government says something like that to corporations over which it wields extreme amounts of legal and regulatory power, those corporations listen. And all of those corporations did what banks and what GoFundMe did just this last week in Canada 12 years ago to WikiLeaks, which is they just choked them. They cut them off. They prevented them from collecting any funds from their supporters. Amazon capitulated in exactly the same way. Amazon kicked WikiLeaks off of the internet. WikiLeaks was incapable of functioning on the internet for weeks. And they finally had to get a server, I believe, in Finland just in order to function. And it was evident to a lot of us at the time how dangerous this framework was. That if the United States government could start to 
unilaterally through its own decree brand people criminals without having to prove that they actually are criminals and succeed in their in fostering and in coercing their banishment from the financial system, you could destroy any organization that way or any individual that way. And a bunch of us, myself and my Snowden reporting colleague, Laura Poitras and Daniel Ellsberg, the whistleblower from the Pentagon Papers case and the actor John Cusack and some transparency activists, we created a group that exists to this very day called the Freedom of the Press Foundation. And at the time, the, the primary purpose of it was simply to say to the public, if you want to donate to WikiLeaks, donate to us and we'll just give it to them. The idea was to circumvent the blockade that the government had imposed because we knew how dangerous it was. But it wasn't very... Uh, people didn't have a lot of concerns about that at the time. The, the, the number of people standing up and objecting was quite small. And what we've seen is this method has really gained a lot of strength. Last year, in the middle of 2021, the Anti-Defamation League, which for a long time was a admired and well-respected group that was devoted to defending Jews against anti-Semitism. Even then, it was still a politicized group, but it was well-respected across the political aisle, controversial among some factions for sure, but largely well-respected. But over the years, it has become nothing more than a standard liberal political advocacy group. It's very much like the ACLU. It bears very little resemblance to its original mission. It's basically just like any other liberal advocacy group. They work for every liberal cause. They're always on the side of the Democratic Party. The longtime and very powerful executive director, Abe Foxman, after decades, retired in 2014. He was replaced by Jonathan uh, Greenblatt, who was a former uh, official with the Obama administration, a very standard Democratic Party operative. And it shows that group now is devoted to things like trying to get Tucker Carlson off the air, um, celebrating and defending Black Lives Matter, uh, protesting Supreme Court decisions on contraception, things very distant from its original mission. It's just a liberal advocacy group. And they announced that they were going to partner with PayPal and their role would be to identify people or groups that have, quote unquote, extremist ideologies, not people who are engaged in criminality or violence, just people who believe things that this liberal advocacy group regards as extremists. And the idea is once they were so designated, PayPal would kick them off their platform, would no longer allow those groups, these extremist groups who have been so designated to participate in what has become a dominant company for electronic payments and cash transfers. And obviously the idea explicitly stated was that once the ADL designated someone an extremist and PayPal agreed and kicked them off, every other bank and financial institution would feel compelled to follow suit. No one is going to ignore what PayPal and the ADL have done. And they were very clear that the purpose of this agreement was not just to get people kicked off for ideological crimes from PayPal, but to get them banished from the financial system. And the first uh, chief operating officer of PayPal is David Sachs, who coincidentally is the co-founder of this app, Colin. And at the time, having been someone who served very early on at PayPal, 
he recognized the extraordinary danger, the grave departure of what PayPal's mission was supposed to be. And he wrote an article warning that this was placing us on the road to essentially a kind of credit system where you're evaluated based not on your behavior or your abidance to the law, but on your political ideology. And that we were on the road to people who have ideologies that in some way are regarded as, are regarded as being dissident or in some way uh, divergent from mainstream orthodoxy, that they were being banished from the financial system. And that's what we saw this week in Canada. It's the culmination of many years of small steps toward this instrument of tyranny. And I trace that history in the Rumble article, but in the su- in the Rumble video, but in the Substack article, wanted to make clear that it is part of a much broader trend where on virtually every front of due process and free speech and the ability to function in society, very similar extrajudicial and extralegal punishments are being developed where the government can impose serious harm, serious punishment on you, despite you're not having committed any crime, by viewing you as some kind of a political and ideological or thought criminal, but not an actual criminal. And I'm not going to delve into every specific part of that history. I wrote it at Substack, and and I hope you read it there. The the last point I want to make about this is the reason why this is being done. Neoliberalism has been the dominant ideology in the West of the last, over the last 20 to 30 years. You can apply that term to the establishment wings of both political parties in the United States, the mainstream political parties in the UK, the centrist parties in Western Europe. And all of the metrics point to the growing anger and discontent and rage and even hatred toward neoliberal elites on the part of large sectors of the population. Everyone sees that. The election of Donald Trump was obviously a byproduct of that. The approval of Brexit, the removal of the the UK from the European Union was also a byproduct of those sentiments. The emergence of far-right parties in places where they were once thought completely unthinkable, like France and Germany, is clearly a byproduct of anger toward neoliberal elites and globalist institutions. Even here in Brazil, where I live, the election of Jair Bolsonaro in 2018, a far-right figure after four straight elections where Brazil elected a technocratically adept, globally popular center-left party, the Workers' Party of Lula da Silva, was a byproduct in lots of ways of that. Obviously, each country has its own idiosyncratic causes, but overall it's driven by this fundamental rage and, 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 and pervasive belief that the neoliberal ruling class doesn't care for most of the population, doesn't care what happens to them. And therefore that anger and rage is being returned. And when elites perceive that they are widely hated, broadly speaking, they can do one of two things. They can take steps to redress the causes of that hatred sacrifice the benefits they've received that have caused such grave income and wealth inequality and inequality of opportunity and offshoring of jobs. They can just reverse those policies, but they don't want to do that because those policies have been very effective for them. So what they can do instead is fortify a system 
that protects them against the efforts of the part of the people who are angry at them to undermine and subvert their power, to protest against them, to engage in dissent. And that's what the system is about. It is about crushing what is clearly coming. We've seen it in in many places. We've seen mass protests in Greece. We saw a separatist movement in Catalonia based in Barcelona. We've seen all kinds of protest movements throughout Western Europe. All the election results I just identified, you see the neoliberal order eroding. And so the, the, the solution that they've opted for is to simply prevent dissent from being permitted. You can dissent as long as it's impotent. You can, you know, go on Twitter and mock Justin Trudeau if you want. No one's going to come and put you in prison. It's when it starts to become effective, when the punishment kicks in, it's effective dissent that is barred. That's why Julian Assange has been in prison effectively for 10 years and in real prison for three with no end in sight because he was so effective in exposing the corruption and criminality of these Western governments. So that's what we're seeing in Canada so vividly. And I, and I think it's important that we see it, but we also recognize that it has been a long time in the making and that it's part of a much more deeply implanted system that pervades the West and that will continue to grow. So that was what I had intended to talk about. Um, I'm going to spend just a few minutes on Ukraine and Russia um, and then try and take as many calls as I can. I see that there are already a lot of people lined up in the queue, which is great. Um, if you still want to, uh, you can click that uh, raised hand feature at the bottom or the telephone feature um, and it will put you in the queue if you have questions or comments or things you want to raise. So Russia and Ukraine is an incredibly complicated situation. And it's complicated because Ukraine is of grave importance to Russia. If you look at the history of the 20th century and the two world wars that killed tens of millions of Russians, that devastated Russia, the importance of Ukraine to Russian security is self-evident. Ukraine played a vital role in how Russia was attacked in both of those world wars. And in 2016, there was a campaign on the part of the establishment wings of both political parties in Washington, Republicans and Democrats, to try and pressure Barack Obama to confront Vladimir Putin more aggressively. They wanted him to confront Putin in Syria You'll remember there was a lot of elite anger that Obama had set this red line of uh, Bashar al-Assad using chemical weapons. And when it was said that he had used them and crossed the red line and Obama did nothing, that was probably the single greatest cause of anger toward Obama by the political and media class in Washington, the bipartisan ruling class. But they also were angry that he wasn't quick enough to flood Ukraine with lethal arms. They wanted all kinds of weapons sent to Ukraine to fight against the Russians. And Obama was refusing. He was resisting bipartisan pressure for a long time. And I really encourage you to read the article I'm about to reference. It's a really actually fascinating interview 
that was conducted by Jeffrey Goldberg, who is the neoconservative editor-in-chief of The Atlantic, probably one of the worst and most toxic and destructive propagandist of the Iraq war. He was at the New Yorker at the time, publishing stories about how Saddam Hussein had an alliance with Al Qaeda, which obviously played a major role in fostering the desire on the, on the part of Americans to invade Iraq after nine 11. If you believe that Saddam Hussein played a role in helping Al Qaeda, that would obviously foster sentiments to attack Iraq, Jeffrey Goldberg was the person most responsible for that. He didn't suffer in any way. In fact, he was promoted. He now is the editor-in-chief of The Atlantic. And he conducted an interview with Obama. He was Obama's, one of Obama's favorite journalists, tellingly. And in this, this whole interview in 2016 in The Atlantic was devoted to Obama's view of foreign policy. And Jeffrey Goldberg spent a lot of time pressing Obama on why he wasn't sufficiently confrontational with Putin. He was demanding that Obama do things against Putin that ironically Donald Trump ended up doing. Trump did send lethal arms to Ukraine. Trump did confront Putin in Syria. Trump did try and sabotage the Nord Stream 2 pipeline between Germany and Russia. But Obama was very reluctant to confront Putin, in part because he believed that Russia was important to help facilitate the Iran deal that was going to be one of the crowning jewels of Obama's legacy. So he didn't, he, he wanted positive relations with, with Russia. In the 2012 election, he famously mocked Mitt Romney for calling Russia the greatest geopolitical threat to the United States and said the Cold War is calling. They want uh, their, their foreign policy back. And they sent out all the Democratic foreign policy luminaries like Hillary Clinton and John Kerry and Michelle Florney and Madeleine Albright to say that Mitt Romney's belief that Russia is a threat to the United States is archaic. It comes from the Cold War. In fact, they're an important partner of ours. And so when that was very much the Obama view, ironically, the view attributed to Trump that he wanted more positive relations with Moscow and was afraid or unwilling to confront Putin. And when Jeffrey Goldberg said to him, why is it that you're so reluctant to send lethal arms to Ukraine? You just watched Putin annex Crimea. And now he's threatening large swaths of eastern Ukraine. Why aren't you willing to do more? This is what Obama said. This is not my saying this. This is Barack Obama in 2016, after serving as president, Democratic president for eight years, Toward the end of his presidency, this is what he told Jeffrey Goldberg. He said, Ukraine is and always will be a vital interest to Russia, but it is not and never will be a vital interest to you, to the United States. Russia cares a huge amount about what happens in Ukraine for reasons that are so obvious if you know even the most minimal amount about Russian history. They care a huge amount about the security situation in Ukraine. Like the United States cares a lot about what happens in Mexico or Cuba. The United States almost had a nuclear war with Russia over what happened in Cuba. That's how much the United States cares about it because of its proximity to the United States. That's how much Russia cares about Ukraine. But the United States doesn't care about Ukraine. It's a country with very few significant natural resources on the other side of the world. It doesn't have much geopolitical or strategic importance to the United States. Why would 
said Barack Obama, the United States risked a confrontation with a nuclear armed power over a country that is of vital interest to them, but not to us. That was Obama's argument. And if you go and read the interview, you'll see him make a very compelling case for it. Contrary to what a lot of people believe about Obama, Obama's foreign policy was rooted in kind of Kissinger, Brent Scowcroft type realism. He didn't care about the pretext of defending democracy or spreading freedom. Sometimes he paid lip service to that, but he didn't really care about that. He was a realist and he looked at Ukraine and he said, why would we risk American lives or treasure or a war with Russia over a country that's so important to them, but not important to us? What changed all of that was the 2016 election in Russiagate, where the Democratic Party decided to blame Vladimir Putin for Hillary Clinton's loss instead of blaming Hillary Clinton and the Democrats. And it made the Democrats filled with obsession and fixation over this threat that they never previously perceived from the Kremlin, from Moscow. And even on his way out in late 2016 or early 2017, in his last press conference, when reporters were badgering at Obama about why you didn't do more to Russia, knowing that they interfered in the 2016 election, he basically said, stop inflating the importance and threat that Russia poses. Their economy is smaller than Italy's. That was always Obama's view of Ukraine and Russia. And the only thing that changed was the insanity of Russiagate, of feeding on Rachel Maddow-type conspiracies that Russia had infiltrated the United States and seized control of the powers of the U.S. government through blackmail over the president. All of that talk about the treason. I mean, just five straight years of unhinged insanity, completely divorced from reality about what, what Russia represents. And we're seeing the rotted fruits of that militaristic rhetoric now. Polls show that independents and Republicans do not think the United States should be involved in any meaningful way in Ukraine and Russia. It's Democrats who want to send troops. It's Democrats who want to be involved. There's a reason Democrats are realigned with neocons. It's because they have become the party of militarism, the party of intervention, the party that says somehow it's worth risking a war with either the first or second greatest nuclear armed power on the planet, or in terms of number of nuclear weapons, operated by still archaic Cold War era hair trigger systems over Ukraine. Ukraine, a country to which liberals have developed this bizarre, irrational, emotional attachment. So none of this is to say that Vladimir Putin is right in recognizing the sovereignty of these countries, none of, of these territories. None of this is to say that the, to assign validity or invalidity to his perception that it is a unjust and legitimate threat to Russian national security to be surrounded by NATO and encircled by NATO all the way up to its most sensitive border areas in a way that Mikhail Gorbachev was promised would never happen when the Soviet Union disintegrated and they consented to the reunification of Russia, of Germany, rather. Leave all those arguments aside about Russia and Ukraine and NATO. The question is, what should the United States do? How much interest do the United States have 
and this border skirmishes on the other side of the of the world compared to the interest Russia has. And my view is the view that Obama so eloquently expressed in that 2016 interview with Jeffrey Goldberg in The Atlantic. Um, and that's the prism through which I see it. So these are obviously complicated topics. Uh, there's a lot more to talk about, but I want to get to callers. So I will leave it there. If there is anything in what I said that you want to ask me about or challenge or question or other topics that you think are worthy of discussion today that you want to raise, feel free to do that. And like I said, I will just go right in order. And the first caller is Johnny. Once you're up in the queue, you just need to unmute yourself and then you can speak. Go ahead, Johnny. Hey, Glenn. Hey, how are you? I'm doing better now. I just want to say before I get to my question that you are my hero, and I'm just so grateful that you are offering your time, your wisdom, and all your knowledge up to us. And um, I'm 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 just blown away by the platform. And you're the one who told me about Colin on a Rumble video a while ago, and I just um, it it was almost unbelievable that I could actually talk to people of uh, such an authority in journalism and any other. Uh, area. So um, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. That's very nice. I really appreciate you saying that. Um, so kind of just get right to the point. Um, are So, the, you know, in on the kind of quote left, there's this uh, division or at least a, a wanting to unify over some sort of a direction. And so there's this system in place for the Democratic Party. So maybe we could have a Bernie type figure go in and kind of blow things up from the inside out. And then there's the reality that they were never going to let that happen. And so um, when it comes to free speech and these issues of public, you know, kind of galvanization, I'm wondering, uh, you know, obviously there's not like a yes or a no clear cut answer, but what's your take on um, spending time trying to coerce and connect with our local government officials to get them on board with some of these issues, which they've probably just been whitewashed by their media sources? Or, you know, is this getting on places like uh, Call-In and Substack and these kind of maybe, quote, third-party information sources, you know, should we maybe build up our foundation of connection so that when it is time for a general strike, we're ready for it? Yeah, you know, I think it's really important that when we have all these sources of information, social media, different social media platforms, different media outlets, cable news, that it's very important that you are careful about how you're forming your perceptions about the world and about how people are thinking. Because it's very easy to have a distorted perception if you're only on Twitter, if you're looking for particular data points that confirm the things you already believe or want to believe. And so when I say that Democrats are becoming and have become the party of militarism or the party of censorship, I'm not saying that based on impressions that I have or anecdotes that I observe, although I do see all that. I base it on polling data, like a consistent stream of polling data. And the thing that alarms me so much is over the last few years, Pew has conducted very in-depth surveys of what are the partisan differences when it comes to the question of whether the internet should be censored by big tech 
and whether the internet should be censored by the government. And the partisan differences are gigantic, like 40 points, with Democrats overwhelmingly saying that big tech should be censoring the internet in the name of disinformation. And almost as large of a majority of Democrats saying that the state should be censoring the internet in the name of combating disinformation. So it isn't as though this kind of censorship craze only exists among members of the national media or elite democratic. It has seeped into the fabric of democratic party political culture in a very pervasive way. Overwhelming majorities believe this. And so You know, I would like to be able to say I still have faith that the Democratic Party that I grew up with in the 1970s and the 1980s that actually stood against censorship while the moral majority and the Reagan movement and social conservatives were agitating for greater censorship of books and films and music, that that can be rejuvenated. But the point data makes that very pessimistic, especially given the narrative that has constantly been reinforced that the adversaries of the Democratic Party are not just people with different ideologies, but are, are, are criminals, terrorists, insurrectionists, seditionists, and traitors. And once you convince a political faction of that, it's very hard to get them back from viewing these methods that have long been viewed as repressive from being justifiable. And so when you ask me what I think the solution is, I absolutely think that it lies in the emergence of this independent, part of the media ecosystem, the platforms that have emerged as a response to big tech censorship that are devoted to safeguarding free inquiry and heterodox thought, the ability to find journalists who are liberated from corporate constraints and corporate controls and don't have to answer to corporate bosses, but can only only have to answer to the readers. And this is why I thought the fight over Joe Rogan was so important was because if they had succeeded in being able to get Joe Rogan booted from Spotify, the consequence was not that Joe Rogan was going to disappear. He would have just gone to a different platform. He would have obviously taken his millions of, 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 of loyal viewers elsewhere. He wasn't going to be silenced. The problem was it was going to send a signal that there's no more space left, even for someone like Joe Rogan, in any mainstream platforms. And it was going to be a huge blow against this attempt to create space within the existing media for ongoing free speech and free inquiry and from dissent from those pieties. And so that's why with everything I do, I try and bring my audience only to platforms that believe in these free speech values that are, that are, you know, part of the backlash against this repressive climate because preserving meaningful spaces that can reach large numbers of people with dissent for me is a prerequisite to anything positive happening. Okay. That's super clear. I really appreciate that. I feel like there's a there's kind of a, um, a timeline disagreement where people think, well, since we already have this, you know, duopoly in place, let's just leverage that. If you go third party, people can't vote, you know, donate to act blue. And so it seems like the obstacles are just so insurmountable and then here's a platform like Colin, and unless it gets clubhoused, you know, but then there's that argument about, well, let's just 
create more of these and make more diversity in ways because if we are all filtered into a Facebook-owned company, as soon as Facebook doesn't want us, then we're all kind of locked out of our accounts. And so uh, it, it seems like um, maybe the most clear way forward is finding new and bolstering alternative and well-established platforms like this. So uh, I guess I just want to end by thanking you again for such a clear answer and um, and walking the talk. I mean, here we are on Colin. Absolutely. Exactly. I mean, I got a little tired of complaining about big tech censorship. And so I'm really glad I'm able to use my platform and use the places I decide to do my journalism as a way of advancing the values that I think are so important. Thank you so much, Johnny, for your participation and, and for your nice words. Next up is William. Go ahead and unmute yourself. Are you there? You seem unmuted, but we're not actually able to hear you. I'm going to have to go to the next caller. Go ahead and get back. See if you can figure out what the problem is. I think in some way your microphone is not connected. And when I see you in the queue, I can put you up as the next caller. So you don't have to wait in the queue again. Um, I'm going to go ahead and take the next caller, which is Brendan. Go ahead. Hey, Glenn. How's it going? Um, I'm good. I wanted to ask you about... um, Something I've observed, sort of two phenomenon that seem very parallel to me. One of them is um, with, with the Ukraine thing, the option that we could just have Ukraine be neutral um, to avoid a conflict does not seem to get very much play. Um, and it's sort of like we've got to drive things to a crisis point. And once Putin makes his move, then we'll react, you know, with tough guy tactics. It reminds me a lot of how um, I feel like Biden's inaction on social legislation is priming the pump for Trump 2.0, right? And um, he could forestall that by doing executive orders, you know, to cut student debt, um, lower the Medicare uh eligibility age, all of these things. But when I bring this up with liberals, that just seems completely off the table. And it's almost like they want to have the crisis in November 2024. And I was wondering, um, do you think that essentially what's going on is there's a consensus between the parties on foreign policy and economics, and liberals are just willing to roll the dice on a binary outcome rather than taking the compromise position? Yeah, you know, I think there's clearly there's there has there has been and still is an overwhelming bipartisan consensus on most issues of significance, which is ironic because the standard narrative of the D.C. press corps is that the parties can't agree on anything, that they're constantly at each other's throats, that there's no more compromise. And that's accomplished by ignoring all of the incredibly consequential areas in which they just simply have complete agreement and focusing only on the areas where they bicker and squabble. But I think if you look, I mean, Ukraine is a perfect example at where there's more vibrant debate on the left or the right. You clearly see a lot more debate on the right. 
within the Republican, within the Democratic Party, when it comes to Ukraine and Russia, where where is the dissent coming from? You know, you have kind of like cliches that get affirmed. You know, there's no military solution. We need to work on diplomacy. But there's no real assertive arguments coming from anyone within the Democratic Party, really, that the U.S. has no role to play in Ukraine. That is something that we should just stay out of. In the Republican Party, you have a much more vibrant debate. You have the standard Republican establishment and the kind of standard hawks within Republican politics that were attacking Obama back in the day for being insufficiently confrontational with Russia, the Marco Rubios and Lindsey Grahams and those type, Tom Cotton's, who have the traditional Republican line that we need to stand up to Putin, punish Putin. Biden hasn't been strong enough on Putin. But then you have the kind of anti-war, isolationist, paleo-conservative, whatever you want to call it, wing that is led by, you know, Tucker Carlson, the most watched and influential media figure on the right, but finds support among numerous politicians as well, like Rand Paul and to some extent Josh Hawley and Thomas Massey, that says that we have no business being in Ukraine. And there's a vibrant debate taking place among different camps on the right that you just don't see on the left. Maybe part of that is because there's a Democratic administration, and so there's just less of a willingness to question a Democratic administration. But I don't think that's true. I just I, There's a lot of inter-party debate on domestic policy within the Democratic Party, but there's very little, and there's long been very little, when it comes to foreign policy in a way that I see on the right that I find encouraging. Yeah, and just, just one last thing. Um, there are eminent political scientists like John Mearsheimer, Steve Walt, the late Stephen Cohen, who have enumerated the realist position um, and really laid out a very common sense case for Ukraine being neutral. And when I talk to liberals, they're not even aware of that. Like they kind of don't believe me when I say that that's an option um, or that it was before today. You know what it reminds me of? Yeah. You know what it reminds me of so much is I remember during the 2016 election and after with Russiagate, when liberals would talk about Russian involvement in the 2016 election as some unprecedented act of, you know, never before seen treachery. And they like just had no idea about the long history of U.S. interference in Russian domestic politics the Time magazine cover boasting of how it was America that helped elect Boris Yeltsin and and, and put him in as president of, of Russia after the fall of the Soviet Union, knowing that he would privatize industry in a way that Western interests would be served. And all the way going up to Hillary Clinton, funding all kinds of groups, agitating protest movements against Vladimir Putin. The same thing is happening now. If you listen to sort of the liberal narrative, and by liberal narrative, I just mean the kind of like... New York Times, Washington Post op-ed page, CNN, NBC Access, Democratic Party politics. Mm -hmm. To listen to them tell the story, Russia just kind of woke up one day and decided it wanted to invade Ukraine, kind of like the United States woke up one day and and wanted to invade Iraq. And the U.S. really has no role in this conflict other than just like distant observer trying to help protect the autonomy and sovereignty of Ukraine as opposed to what the reality is, which is that the United States has basically treated Ukraine like a colony. I mean, it was Victoria Nuland in 2014 who chose who the the prime minister of of Ukraine was going to be. Remember that Burisma paid Joe Biden's son, Hunter, $50,000 a month, 
not because he had any experience in the energy industry in Ukraine, but because Joe Biden was basically acting as a kind of consul, like a, a colonial master of Ukrainian internal affairs. The United States has been directing and manipulating and interfering in Ukrainian domestic politics to such an extent right on the Russian border, which is why Putin today said that the, the Ukrainian government is basically just a puppet regime of the United States. So again, you can recognize that and then still have various policy conclusions from that. But that recognition is completely missing from the discourse as most people are absorbing it about what has happened with Russia and Ukraine and the role the United States has already played in these series of events. Yeah, well, thank you for that. Um, It's very helpful for my sanity to have voices like yours out there. I appreciate it. All right, same here. Thank you. Um, Next up will be D. Go ahead, D. Um, Unmute yourself, and we should be able to hear you. Hey, can you hear me? Yep, I can hear you. Hey, Glenn. Um, How are you doing? I I, I definitely, um, I will say before I, I... just challenge you on something. I definitely agree with your kind of pointing out some of the Russiagate hysteria. I was never a big fan of it. I thought it didn't matter to the average American citizen. Citizen, I guess my my question to you is, in terms of your criticism, why why do, why is your criticism so based on um, kind of mainstream liberals in in terms of being authoritarians? Because I've noticed that between the Rogan thing, between um, calling out them for not supporting the freedom protests in Ottawa, that you kind of focus on them solely when I've seen that the isolationist right that you, I guess, you do think finally of is authoritarian in their own ways, even in terms of like the idea that the same people who are against the Ottawa protests regularly in, in this, or the same people that are for the Ottawa protests regularly support police brutality, regularly, you know, we're in favor of the government cracking down on BLM protesters and regularly, you know, are launching kind of McCarthyite campaigns against teachers who are teaching things they don't like. And so like my whole view of the Ottawa protests is these are people that people on the right actually identify with. So it's not an authoritarian issue. It's more of an identity issue. So I just wanted to ask that. Yeah, no, I think it's a fair question and a fair implicit critique, and I'll just answer it by saying the following. First of all, obviously, if you look at Washington, the predominant power in Washington is the Democratic Party, not the Republican Party. The Democratic Party controls the House, controls the Congress, controls the White House and all of the executive and regulatory branches that that accompany it. I also think that over the past six years as a reaction to Donald Trump and the kind of horror that he instilled in elite institutions, American liberalism or kind of mainstream Democratic Party politics has become the overwhelmingly dominant strain of ideology in most American institutions from Wall Street to Silicon Valley, certainly to culture, um, academia, even corporate America. I mean, there's just a homogeneity of views that is the dominant ideology in the United States. And I don't think you can say that, you know, it's the kind of isolationist right that barely has uh, uh, an ability to get a foothold even in the Republican Party, let alone in all of these broader institutions. So, so that's uh, one main reason is I just think it's the dominant strain. The other is, is that because 
because um, this form of liberalism has taken over most elite institutions, you can pick up any newspaper any day of the week and read one scathing denunciation of the American right after the next. The American media was overwhelmingly disgusted by Donald Trump. It hates its political movement, especially after January 6th. All of those kind of controversies that you alluded to get ample coverage. I mean, kind of flood the zone coverage by the largest and most influential news outlets. And one of the things I've always tried to do as a journalist, you know, who largely has operated independently, even when I've nominally been part of an institution, is give my attention journalistically to things that are getting insufficient attention and not excessive attention. So, you know, I could also sit around and talk about the things that I think are wrong with police brutality. And I can choose to spend my time on some of the parts of the curriculum fights over which books ought to be taught in schools that I think have become excessive. But every day I have to wake up and ask myself, what is the best use of my journalistic platform? And when you combine the fact that the liberal assault on free speech and dissent is much more systematic because it has institutional support behind it far more than its adversaries. And then you add on to that the fact that the assaults on free speech coming from neoliberalism get far less attention than the abuses of the American right or the Western right. To me, a much better use of my journalistic platform is to shine a light on the things that I think are getting overlooked rather than just simply jump through hoops and echo what most other people with journalistic platforms are saying just in order to signal to people that I also dislike those things. I think, you know, my record of my views and my values are pretty clear. I try never to speak out of like a cursory obligation just to jump through a hoop. Um, I try instead to think about how I can actually have the greatest effect using my platform. And to me, that means shining a light on the greatest threats and the ones that get the least attention. Yeah, that makes sense. I guess my, my one pushback would just be that I do think that the right has power in terms of um, the groups that they are allowed to represent. So, for example, um, I would say people like um, Tucker Carlson and Ben Shapiro and people of that nature are allowed to very, very easily talk negatively about poor and working class people of color. But if Joy Reid were to say, like, West Virginia is a crap hole in the same way that that's been said, about Baltimore on Fox News, then her, she would be met with more condemnation than people on the right would be. That you know, sense? I mean, I, I would, I, yeah, I would definitely question that. I mean, I think that, you know, there are billionaire funded groups like Media Matters and entire news outlets that do very little other than live blog Fox News all day. You know, the minute Tucker Carlson goes on the air, you have gigantic institutions, including CNN, that are devoted to just waiting for whatever little snippet can be used to throw all around the internet in order to disparage or demean something that he said in a way that I don't think is even close to being true for members of the liberal sector of the media. I mean, you can't deny that there's incredibly intense and pervasive coverage devoted to the things that Tucker Carlson is saying, he probably is the single most scrutinized and criticized person in the American media. And that's why if somebody says, 
well, why don't you criticize Tucker Carlson? I point to the entire industry, you know, the kind of cottage industry of activist groups and media watchdog groups and other news outlets that do that every single day, seemingly every single minute. Um, And so I just don't feel like it's a very constructive use of my time to kind of swim in the same pool that everybody else is already swimming in. Okay, thanks for taking my call. Yeah, no, I appreciate your your uh, pushback. Um, it was interesting, and I'm, I was glad for the opportunity to address it. Thank you very much. Um, next up is Andrew. Go ahead, Andrew. Hello, sir. Um, so I'd like to try to make a couple really quick points and hopefully find merit in one of them. Um, so the first thing is that I saw you talking or referencing to some goofball on Twitter su- suggesting that any criticism of uh, U.S. government uh, the U.S. government view on Ukraine is treason, essentially. Um, and this idea that, you know, basically, if you disagree, you're parroting Putin. Um, between this and what's going on in Canada. Well, did, did, let me just interject really quickly. That was actually that wasn't just some random goofball on Twitter. That was actually Lawrence Tribe of the Harvard Law School, like probably the most prestigious constitutional law scholar in America or one of them anyway. That He, he was the one who said he thinks Tucker Carlson and anybody else on Fox taking the side of Russia is guilty of treason. And I'm sure he would apply that to the left without a blink of an eye. And so this kind of reinforces my point that, yeah, it's not just some goofball. I wish he was. But uh, it's going to be less about the left and the right and more about authoritarianism versus people that are willing to basically tolerate free expression. And it doesn't matter. I see people that they're few and far between on the left now, but there are left anti-imperialist, anti-war people. And uh, basically, I just think it's very important that everybody that's available to speak up against this kind of thing, against you know, labeling dissent as treason, you know, might, we just need to accept them basically if they're not completely deranged and hateful people um, and need to put the left right thing behind us more. Second point real quick, the democracy propaganda going on about Ukraine. uh, It's one of the big talking points. The, the idea that Ukraine is a democracy has been challenged, but also I think it's important to bring up the votes and referendums that took place in Crimea and at least one of the two places that, just uh, Putin just recognized as independent, they had votes and they voted to join Russia. And I believe Russia rejected one of them joining. So, you know, when it comes to Taiwan, we want to be able to have uh, the, the ability to have a democratic separation from a country. But in this case, we don't care. So democracy basically only applies when it favors us, which isn't a surprise. Thirdly, really quick, you asked what should the U.S. do or NATO do? And I found myself having a hard time answering this question of what would I accept as, you know, legitimate intervention. And I really can only come to the conclusion I'm not, you know, I'm iffy on this, too, but that if there was some kind of humanitarian cause where it was just an outright slaughter, maybe we could enforce a demilitarized zone and help some kind of evacuation. But beyond that, I don't see any legitimate cause to send even one person to fight or Russians, you know, even if they take you back Kiev. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on any of that. Thank you for your time. Yeah, those are all great points. Um, So on the first one, this idea that these attacks on free speech and dissent are not properly understood as left versus right. If I had one ability to drum into everyone's at a point, it would be this one. People perceive that this idea, this cause of internet freedom is like a right-wing cause. It's bizarre that free speech has become a right-wing cause. 
the very first reporting I ever did on big tech censorship was back in 2016 when I was at The Intercept and I had heard reports from Palestinian activists I knew that they were getting banned in mass by Facebook. And I did a lot of reporting. I went and interviewed a bunch of people. And what I found out was that every other month, the Israeli government was submitting to Facebook a list of Palestinian journalists, Palestinian news accounts, Palestinian activists that the Israeli government was accusing of inciting terrorism, by which the Israeli government typically means criticizing Israel in a way that's not entirely polite. And Facebook was accepting something like 98 or 99 percent of the requests of the Israeli government to ban or disactivate pages of Palestinian activists and Palestinian journalists. That was the first reporting I ever did on big tech censorship. Back in 2018, there was this controversy because PayPal started to deplatform members of the Proud Boys to prevent them from getting donations like people like Gavin McGinnis, the former, the, the, the founder of the, of, the, of the Proud Boys. And when they did it, they also ended up banning a bunch of accounts that they believed were associated with Antifa. I don't know if it was because they just wanted to maintain a balance of showing that they were, you know, deplatforming both extremists on the left and the right or whatever, or if they really just did it out of conviction. But there's this hilarious article in The Guardian from 2018 that reads, this is the the headline, PayPal ban unfairly lumps Antifa with far-right Proud Boys, critics say. So implicitly meaning, of course, the Proud Boys should be kicked off PayPal, but not Antifa. And then it goes on to say the crackdown draws ire from left-wing organizers who say the firm is pandering to white nationalists and extremists. So these left-wing organizers were not angry. They didn't have ire because people were getting deplatformed for their ideology. They were angry that they were, their side was getting deplatformed as well. And of course, that's always going to happen. You know, among the groups most persecuted by the FBI as part of this crackdown on domestic extremism are groups like the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers and the Three Percenters, but also animal rights activists. You know, I'm a vegan. I think factory farms are hideous. I have very good relationships with a lot of animal rights activists. They're incredibly persecuted. They're monitored. They're surveilled. Um, and that's always going to happen is it the, the government doesn't care if you're on the right or the left. The government cares if you're subservient to their ideology or you're a dissident of it. And I, I think that point is the one that most gets lost. Um, on the question of like what the people in these regime in these regions wanted, I remember very well in 2008, there was that president of, of Georgia um, who was the darling of neocons. And there were those two breakaway provinces that regarded themselves not as... Um, as having no allegiance to Tbilisi, but wanting to be part of Russia. They spoke Russian. They identified as Russia, as Russian. And so when the Russians invaded Georgia and decided to protect those two provinces, the people of those provinces celebrated. And yet somehow it was viewed as an attack on their sovereignty and their autonomy rather than an affirmation of it. The same with the referendum in Crimea. People will say the referendum that was held in Crimea in 2014 where 95% of the people voted to become uh, to break away from Ukraine wasn't legitimate because the Russians were occupying it militarily, which was true. 
But nobody denies that the overwhelming majority of people in Crimea wanted to be part of Russia and not part of Ukraine. And that same is true of these territories, which tonight are celebrating the recognition of themselves as independent and sovereign. Um, You know, as far as a NATO role, you know, the concern that I have is with all of this leaking about how Russia is going to do a full-scale invasion of Kiev and, and, and Ukraine, and it's going to be atrocious and brutal and savage. I'm really worried that the groundwork is being laid for this sort of humanitarian narrative that we have to go in and create a no-flight zone like was done in Syria or like was done in Libya. Um, that is a tactic that the United States and, and, and NATO uses. I do think it's interesting to note that we've been told for the last two weeks that the U.S. government has such complete and total infiltration of what Putin and top-level Kremlin officials are thinking that they are certain, with 100% certainty, they know for sure that the decision has been made to order a full-scale invasion of Ukraine, and yet that's not what happened. Tonight, at least, maybe it will happen, but tonight, Putin instead recognized as independent and sovereign two territories in eastern Ukraine. If we were so infiltrating, if we were so buried and, and, and burrowed into Kremlin decision-making, as the media has been leading us to believe, why didn't the United States government know that Putin was going to do this? And so I think we need to be extremely careful anytime there's talk of war in D.C., but particularly when you're talking about potential war, even indirectly through proxies between two nuclear armed powers. That is not a joke. And anything that we're told, anything that we hear, I think we need to be extremely skeptical of. We need to be immune to the tactic that if we question claims of Russian atrocities and want to see evidence before we believe them, that that makes us assets of the Kremlin or apologists for Putin I think our obligations as citizens of the world is to make sure that we don't fall for the same kind of propaganda that so many other times has been used in the past to manipulate public opinion whenever war emerges. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. And it's the reason I'm so skeptical of the humanitarian claims is I remember what Obama did to Syria with that exact same justification. Um, yeah. And I also think it's important to remember, last thing I'll say is that I don't believe anyone can make an argument that it's not in Putin's best interest to do whatever he's going to do with as little bloodshed as possible. It does not make any possible sense for him to just, you know, start murdering people, you know, and it's kind of like this evil cartoonish figure they like to present like, oh, obviously Putin has no regard for life, but that just doesn't make sense from a political strategic perspective at all. So thanks. So yeah, much I mean, no, I mean, he's clearly been whatever I want to say about him, a rational actor who operates in self-interest. And so the idea that suddenly he's going to just abandon all reason um, and do exactly what would justify a full scale confrontation, military confrontation with the West that he knows nobody could win um, seems extremely dubious. Um, and again, all the more reason why we need to keep our guard of skepticism up very high. Um, Thank you, Andrew. Really appreciate it. Um, Let me go ahead and take one last caller, um, which is Stephen. If you were in the queue and I didn't get to you, I apologize. Um, We're going to try and do weekly shows. So keep coming back and 
Before you go, Stephen, I just want to take the opportunity to say I have a weekly show as well that I mentioned earlier with uh, the Canadian journalist Q Anthony. That's weekly Thursday at 4.30, which 4.30 p.m. Eastern, uh, where we have a very similar format. So you can come back to that as well. Go ahead, Stephen. Thanks, Glenn. Uh, longtime listener, first time through your queue. I'll try to be succinct here. Um, been a fair few questions on Ukraine, so I'd like to draw this back to SWIFT and the banking blockades. Um, I guess I'd quibble that it might additionally tie back to civil assets forfeiture. Uh, but to your point, at least that kind of had like the rubber stamping by the court system. Um, you were talking a little bit about disenfranchisement too. And <laughs> uh, I kind of equate that, I guess, in my mind, my go-to analogy is like a child's steering wheel. I feel like you can turn it left or right, but it's not really connected to anything. And we're still kind of speeding down the road um, towards like uh, extremist wealth distribution and entrenched corruption. And I don't know. I definitely see a fair few people like kind of willing to blame their own child for <laughs> turning the political steering wheel the wrong way. Uh, and in reality, I feel like elected officials really only have efficacy when they act in alignment with real power centers in the U.S. anyway. Uh, and so like a lot of people get drummed out of office, particularly if they're earnest. Um, but th- that's not really my question. My question is about um, you already discussed the ch- about the chilling of um uh, on a couple of platforms. And it's definitely a natural concern. My question is about the concept of deterrence. So like af- asset forfeiture was traditionally reserved for like drug dealers and mob bosses, I guess. Um, uh, and this, on the other hand, extends to kind of like literal fundraising participants. So if they treat political participants as drug dealers, what becomes the distinction in punishment? Are, are we becoming kind of a culture of like one crime and one punishment, no matter how bad the infraction I mean, if they're turning people out into the streets, uh, what do they have left to? Yeah, you know, I think I, I, I think I don't think we've fully grappled with how ominous this was what happened in Canada. It you know, it wasn't just that the most draconian powers a state can invoke, which is a state of emergency where civil liberties are essentially suspended, was invoked in a situation where it was woefully inadequate to justify that. I mean, if like blocking a few streets justifies the declaration of a state of emergency that suspends civil liberties, essentially anything does. And one of the things that was encouraging was that the ACLU of Canada which isn't called the ACLU, but it is the ACLU of Canada, actually acted like the old ACLU in the United States and and and, and sued the Trudeau, Trudeau government and immediately said that the conditions weren't even close to being met. The Communist Party of Canada, despite denouncing the trucker movement as this kind of right-wing astroturf movement and even suggested that it had fascist sentiments to it, nonetheless objected strongly to the invocation of the Emergencies Act, knowing that it could be used against them as well. But I still don't think that the financial component of it, and it's the reason why I devoted my Rumble report to it, has been fully appreciated. The idea that you can now freeze people's bank accounts. So you go to work in the morning, you save your money, you pay all your bills, you have legitimate sources of income that you can easily demonstrate And then you end up donating money to a legal protest that the government retroactively declares is illegal, or you participate in it thinking that you're exercising your constitutional rights and suddenly the government declares a state of emergency and then they can seize your funds. 
They freeze your bank account and prevent you from accessing the money that you use to for your survival, for your to participate in society. And what is even more alarming is that Trudeau admits that there's no blockades anymore. They've moved all of the large trucks. There's no more impeding of traffic. Essentially, they succeeded in dismantling the protests. And yet, for some reason, he said today, they cannot yet lift the state of emergency, the, the suspend the emergency act. It's necessary for them to continue to do that, which means all of those surveillance powers, all of that tracing of money, all of that ability to freeze money is still in the hands of the government, even though the conditions that they claim justify the Emergency Act by their own reasoning, by their own acknowledgement, no longer exist. And so, you know, that's why I, I really tried hard today to emphasize that you should be alarmed by what happened in Canada, but it is not some Canada-specific mentality that just got rolled out because they got to the breaking point where they couldn't take it anymore. There has been a deliberate and systemic attempt in the West to create the framework that allows for these. If you go and look at what Spain did to those protesters in Barcelona, human rights groups at the time were saying we've never seen the use of domestic force against protesters on on the mainland of Western Europe since the end of World War II. Like what we're seeing against these protesters in Barcelona by the Madrid government. And obviously, if you look at the civil liberties abuses that have been directed both before January 6th, but especially after January 6th to supporters of MAGA, the the civil liberties abuses are unlimited. And it all is stemming from this similar, this, this, this consistent mentality that the opponents of neoliberals are not political opponents in the ordinary sense, but are actual criminals, are fascists are people who pose an existential threat to all things decent and therefore any weapons that can be assembled in the name of defeating them becomes not just justified, but necessary. And huge numbers of people, millions and millions of people who subscribe to that neoliberal ideology and follow those neoliberal leaders have become convinced of that. And that's what I find so ominous. Yeah. yeah and that that's the part that's inconsistent and frustrating to me is they, they are weaponizing this. They're escalating. And so the next time one of their political opponents comes into power, of course, they have these same weapons. They have these same tools. And I don't understand how. Yeah, that's always the big mystery, right, is you cheer for censorship because you're happy that Alex Jones and Miley Yiannopoulos are kicked off the Internet. And yet I don't know why you are comfortable believing that next year it won't be like Cornell West and Ilyan Omar. Um, but apparently people have this, this part of their brain that convinces themselves that this power will be used only for the good. Or they'll do what I showed in that Guardian article they'll do, which is they will object, but not on the principle, but simply by saying, yeah, of course, the Proud Boys should be kicked off, but not Antifa. Um, and that's why, you know, the only cogent and effective way to address any of this is by affirming the principle that is universally applied and equally applicable to everybody, regardless of ideology, and not just invoked on a kind of case-by-case basis whenever your interests are served by doing so. Um, 
All right, everybody. Well, we were at we're at the end of our time or a little over. Um, I try and keep it to an hour and a half, which seems like a manageable time. Um, there was a lot of people. There were a lot of people in the room. Um, I assume that's because new people are coming because the app is now downloadable on Android. So, you know, there's a really wide range of people already on call. And I hope you'll check out the the range of people who have already in such a short time started shows, people on the left, people on the right, people in between. There's Justin Amash, the sort of, you know, reigning prince of libertarianism, even who's here. So every ideology is represented. I really believe that this form of interaction with your audience is a crucial form of journalistic accountability. So I hope you'll encourage friends and other people to download the apps. Um, if you don't listen to a show live, you can listen to it on the call-in uh, website where all the shows are automatically saved. And so uh, let me once again thank everybody who came and listened tonight and filled the room. And especially thank you to everybody who stepped up and asked such uh, provocative and interesting questions that made the time go by really fast and I think made the conversation uh, really provocative and interesting. So thank you to everybody. Have a great night and I will see you the next time.